Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Hazel Henderson. Hazel is a world-renowned futurist, evolutionary economist, and worldwide syndicated colonist consultant on sustainable development. She has many awards. Here are just a small handful. Hazel is listed in Who's Who USA, Who's Who in the World, Who's Who in Business and Finance, and Who's Who in Science and Technology. She is an honorary member of the Club of Rome. She shared the 1996 Global Citizen Award with Nobel Prize winner A. Perez Escoval of Argentina. In 2007, she was elected a fellow to Britain's Royal Society of Arts. In 2010 and 2012, she was honoured as one of the top 100 thought leaders in trustworthy business behaviour. And the Post Growth Institute Enriched List named her as one of the top 100 luminaries exploring and inspiring global prosperity beyond economic wealth. Hazel is the author of the award-winning book Ethical Markets and eight other books. She founded Ethical Markets Media and operates as the president of that organization. Welcome to FuturePod, Hazel. Thank you very much, Peter. I'm looking forward to this. Great, Hazel. So first question is the Hazel Henderson story. So please, what is the story of how you became a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Well, I grew up in Bristol, outside of Bristol in the, U- in the UK. Now, of course, it's Little England. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I became, I came to New York uh, and was uh, became a naturalized American citizen in 1963. And it was very exciting for me to realize that as a U.S. citizen, uh, I had the power was uh, that was levered by all the hundreds of people apparently that didn't bother to vote. <laughs> and I thought that was totally amazing. And so um, I got right involved in the city of New York uh, in the whole problem of air pollution, because I can remember my parents being in London during the, the great fog, you know, smog of 1952. Mm. And, uh, and I realized that there was the same potential uh, in New York City. So I started along with other mothers, actually, in the, in the play park because, you know, I had a small daughter at that point and um, was living in the city. And uh, we started a group called Citizens for Clean Air. And uh, we ended up, you know, teaching people in New York City in the 60s about the word pollution. And <laughs> I realized that it was all about media. Um, and public education. And, um, you know, how could you kind of uh, help people to see what was going on in New York, where every little brownstone house had its own uh, incinerator. And there was all this fumes and smoke at the street level. And then there were all the big power plants from uh, the electric utilities surrounding the city. 
So I went up and down Madison Avenue uh, being thrown out of advertising agencies where I was asking them if they would do a free campaign for us uh, because I had gone first, of course, to the advertising council where you were supposed to go. And I realized that all of the people on the board of the advertising council represented the polluters <laughs> doing the polluting. So, so, um, so finally, I found a young ad agency um, that uh, had uh, the Volvo account. And uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, taken in to meet the, the young president. And uh, basically, I persuaded him uh, that, that they ought to do um, a public service ad campaign for us. And he brought in his vice presidents and said, look, this lady doesn't have any money. Uh, she has this little citizens group. But look out the window and see, see all this pollution. And she's trying to clean the air. So this wonderful ad agency did a, a, a tremendous campaign for us with five uh, TV spots. And in those days, you'd have a 60-second TV spot five radio spots, five print ads. And, of course, uh, once we managed to get those on the air in New York City, um, suddenly uh, we had block captains in all five boroughs. Uh, checks were actually coming over the transom. You know, a, a member of the city council gave us a little corner in his office and all of that. And I, uh, that was really my introduction to being a U.S. citizen seeing the power of media, and uh, it seemed so much more open than anything I could have done growing up in Britain. You know, in, in Britain, um, there would sort of, you wouldn't feel um, empowered to do anything like that in, in quite that way, um, you know. So, um, so basically, um, that led to my um, really working with Ralph Nader, who had a group in 1968 called the Campaign to Make General Motors Responsible. And our group, Citizens for Clean Air, realized that, my God, you know, 30% of all the air pollution was coming from Detroit uh, in these automobile exhausts. So I, I joined up with uh, NADA, and, you know, the whole idea was you bought shares of stock and went to the annual meeting, and we were trying to place three public interest people on their board of directors. So um, this was just the action research that I needed as a new citizen to figure out how the American economy actually worked. You know? <laughs> and uh, it, it's, there's nothing like um, a firsthand experience, you know? <laughs> and so uh, basically... Uh, we ended up connecting with Senator Robert Kennedy, who had just become our senator in the late 60s. It was 1968. And uh, we uh, got him to come on a helicopter ride around New York City, where we showed him all the point sources of pollution. And one of my prized possessions is a letter from him uh, thanking me for the helicopter ride. And I have a nice picture, you know, and all that. And then he went on from there. We told him that um, our basic issue was that the economic textbooks were wrong and that the GDP didn't include the bads 
um, didn't subtract the bads from the goods. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the GDP um, counted in pollution as if it was valuable, you know. Yeah. And yeah. so we were very new to this whole thing. But what happened was that Kennedy bought uh, this whole idea, you know, that we were trying to correct the GDP, all these citizens. And he went and made the very famous speech in 1968 um, at the University of Kansas, his speech about what's wrong with GDP, which mm -hmm. is still quoted everywhere. He said, you know, that all of the things that are important in our lives are not in the GDP. You know, how we yeah. love our children and our art and music. Great speech. So uh, by that time, um, uh, people were beginning to say, um, uh, that I was a socialist, um, or that <laughs> that that I was, you know, a communist, or, or that I was a Marxist, or should I go back to Russia? And I couldn't understand what that was all about. And so I decided, well, you know, um, I found this group of people called the World Future Society, and I thought, okay, I'm going to call myself a futurist. <laughs> and get out of that whole thing, you know, about left and right and, you know, yeah. the Cold War and all of that um, rhetoric that I didn't understand at all, you know, it was so weird. Uh, and so um, on joining the World Future Society, I met the most eminent futurist that really um, at that time, and she's still is the most eminent futurist, I think, in the U.S. She passed away last year, and that is Barbara Marks Hubbard. Yep. Yep. And um, she and I became very good friends, and she absolutely blew my mind. And mm. I remember we were having lunch one day with her and the guy she was working with at NASA, at the time, and she had decided that NASA didn't understand what the space program was really about, and that it, the space program was really about teaching uh, humans about our true situation in space and our relationship to the sun. And uh, I was just so thrilled because I knew that that was, you know, that was the image that I had um, all along. And so her next, I remember her next thing. She was inviting me to these wonderful dinner parties where she was having the best public intellectuals sitting around the table and Buckminster Fuller, you know, people like that. And uh, wow. so the next thing was she invited me to um, a big cocktail party where she brought all of these big uh, financial people that she knew. And the idea was that she said we should have a citizen's mission to the moon and they would put the money up to buy a used Saturn rocket, which NASA had used a couple of times and it's now, you know, still operational, but they weren't using it. So the idea was that her friend Harry Winston, the jeweler, had told her that the way they would pay for the citizen's mission to the moon was to scoop up some moon rocks and then sell them on the semi-precious gem market. And that would be the way the thing would be 
commercialized. <laughs> and I never forget going to that cocktail party. And, you know, it just blew my mind. You know, <laughs> uh, you know? and that's the way Barbara was. You see, she yeah. just had no boundary, no intellectual no. boundaries at all. No. And, um, and, of course, Buckminster Fuller, who I got to know very well, too. We were good friends. And he always said she was the most well-informed human on the planet. And and so basically I remember she and I were very much out of tune with the World Future Society as it was in those days. Mostly it would be um, corporate consultants and they they would be doing future studies about the future of General Motors uh, and of course, all we cared about was the future of the whole planet. Yeah. And uh, so we were definitely um, out on a limb. And I remember that uh, the the most memorable thing for me was the World Future Society meeting in 1975. With about two or three thousand people there in that big hotel, the Washington Hilton, where they always used to have it. And of course, it was all white males. But there was a very small group of about 20 uh, people from other countries, mostly also male, but some of them a little darker skinned and, you know, more unusual. (laughs) And and so what happened was that after there were all the usual males on all of the keynotes, you know, there was Forrester and Herman Kahn and... uh, Or, you know, it was almost before even Toffler became, you know, the big draw. And so what happened was that uh, there was a a meeting uh, late in the evening and this rebel group of world futurists dragged me in there and said, look, you know, we want you to represent us and we're going to lobby you onto this platform tomorrow morning where you'll be with Herman Kahn and, you know, Jay Forrester and all of these very left brain kind of futurists. And so I was terrified. And they said, well, you know, we like what you do. And uh, by that time, of course, I'd written a lot of articles. I mean, I'd had articles published in the Harvard Business Review. And, you know, I was pretty much of a policy wonk myself by that time, but mostly science policy. I was a cabinet level science policy advisor to the U.S. Office of Technology Assessment and um, from 1975 to 1980 and the National Academy of Engineering and so on. And so anyway, uh, the next morning, I wake up about 2 a.m. trying to think, what the hell am I going to say <laughs> on this panel, you know, with all these male big shots? So um, they got me on there, and there's a lot of resistance. But anyway, so I stand up there with no actual written speech, and I just sort of blurted out uh, for about 15 minutes what I thought was wrong with the whole Cartesian approach and the whole problem with externalities allowed in economics and all of the stuff, you know, that I was by that time uh, doing. And uh, suddenly, of course, I got a standing ovation. Everybody wanted copies of the speech. I hadn't even written it down. 
And, <laughs> and so that was really my introduction to the World Future Society. And yeah. so that's that part of it. That's amazing. I mean, uh, I mean, was that rebel group, was that kind of the the kind of federation type group that were oh, yes, forming at that time? Oh, yes, it was the World Future Studies Federation people. I think our friend Zia Sarda might have been there and maybe Sahail as well. Mm. I, I really can't remember all of the yeah. people in that little group, but I was the only woman. I don't know why they put me up there, except that I published three articles in the Harvard Business Review by that time. So oh, I had a little... They chose the right person. Yeah, so I had a little bit of credibility, even though the futurists, you know, the professional futurists didn't accept anything that I was saying, you know, because mm. I was critiquing the whole thing. I was saying, Barbara and I were always talking about visions of desirable futures. Yeah. I remember I did a session with Barbara in one of the Feder- in a World Future Society thing, and she was at that time she was very much onto the notion of the future of human evolution. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. So this was about how we intentionally evolved rather yeah. than accidentally evolved. Yeah, That's no, right. The foundation for conscious evolution. Oh, I mean, yes, she was so far ahead of any anybody else at the World Future Society. She and the Tofflers. I mean, I was very fond of Al and Heidi Toffler. And uh, we got together when I was doing Citizens for Clean Air. And that was before they had all the success with Future Shock. And uh, they had a big apartment, I remember, um, on Fifth Avenue. And I remember going up there one night for dinner, you know, one time, which was just after the future future shock had been published and they said oh my god you know we've got all this mail we don't know what to do with all of this mail and and they were hiring two and three people to answer all of this mail in their apartment in new york and suddenly of course they realized that you know they couldn't do that anymore you know that the book was just such an incredible success and Mm. They were very down-to-earth, wonderful people, both of them. So we were very good friends. And there was a time, you know, I was sort of very much a political activist as well as loving, you know, all the writing that they were doing. And we were talking about all of the ideas as well. But I remember one time they were saying, well, look, if you want, Hazel, look, if you want to run for the U.S. Senate, there's an open Senate seat, we'll pay for you to run for the Senate. So you won't have to take any special interest money. You know? <laughs> and I, I was saying, oh, my God, you know, this is not my path. You know, <laughs> uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. But on the other hand, I do not want to put myself into an 18th century institution. Where I'll be the only woman, you know. <laughs> oh my God, be like an intellectual prison. But it was that it was that kind that we had a lot of fun together. And I remember um, the first time I met Newt Gingrich, I had a a weekend party. Uh, by that time, I'd moved down to Princeton, and they brought Newt Gingrich, who at that point was a very normal history professor. And, of course, what happened to him afterwards was he got completely power drunk. And um, uh, there's a book just come out about how Newt Gingrich 
started all of this weaponizing of language that, you know, the us and them and uh, teaching the Republican Party that they had to be, they, they had to call Democrats names, you know, and I mean, uh, Newt turned into a real horror story. But I did remember that one time, you know, and of course, when he got in on that contract, we used to say contract on America. When he brought in those Republicans in 1996, the first thing they did was to shut down OTA. That was their big idea, you see. I mean, I had been on the uh, OTA Technology Assessment Advisory Board for six years and had done a lot to develop the methodology of technology assessment and all of that. And of course, their right-wing funders and supporters, the libertarians, they had to shut OTA down because we were doing all of these amazingly good studies, you know, about the future of the internal combustion engine that which put it in the Smithsonian. These were all studies of the shift to green energy and how we should restructure the U.S. economy, all kinds of stuff like that. And all of these studies are still now I have a whole set of them in electronic form here in our library, and there is another set of them at Princeton University. But basically what Newt was saying with his Republican friends was, we've got to shut this thing down because we don't need anyone to assess technology because the market assesses technology. <laughs> And it's about consumer demand, you know, even though, of course, we knew that giant corporations uh, pushed technologies on unsuspecting people and didn't even ask for half of these technologies, like supersonic yes. transport planes, you know, and all that. Yeah. So that, was our, yeah. uh, that was our friend at Apple who said, you don't bother to ask people what they want. You build what they need and then convince them they need it. Oh, God. Yes. It's just amazing. So in at OTA, we called that technology push. You know, when we used to always start with, is this technology a producer push technology or is it a consumer pull technology? Mm. You know, so I learned a tremendous amount for that six years. And I drifted away from the World Future Society because uh, I was just dealing firsthand with the, uh, looking at all of the fossil fuel special interests and, and all of the subsidies they had and, you know, the way uh, they were allowed to externalize all of their costs and the way they had lobbied to get all of these subsidies and, you know, that special attention in the tax code. I saw it all firsthand. And I realized that one of the scientists that I served with on the advisory council of OTA, Jim Fletcher, who went on to be the president of, you know, of NASA, the administrator of NASA, and he was with the Mid Midwest Research Institute. And he, he said to us, I remember at one of our first meetings in 1975, he said, you know, if our government had subsidized solar, wind, and energy efficiency to the same amount that they subsidized nukes and fossil fuels, 
uh, the U.S. economy today in, in 1975 would be solely driven by renewable energy. Mm. And that kind of was what I was basically working with when I left um, Washington. I sat down and wrote the politics of the solar age. I've seen it all firsthand. Let's now segue into the second question, Hazel, because this is the one where you get a chance to, to not just explain something, but but even advise or educate the listeners about a framework or idea which is central to your practice. Yes, yeah. Well, uh, what I realised from that six years watching the process of science policy technology policy and the political process for six years, watching all of that going on, the intellectual paradigms behind it and all the rest of it. And I realized it was mostly driven by power and um, money. And, And basically, my whole idea was that the fossil fuel era was coming to an end, not necessarily because we were going to run out of fossil fuels, just like uh, they always said, you know, the people at OPEC always said, well, you know, uh, the Stone Age didn't end because they ran out of stone. <laughs> you know, it's a matter of the evolution of human knowledge. And I saw all the business plans that were coming over my desk at OTA, you know, for wind generators, solar panels, uh ocean thermal uh, energy conversion, all of these interesting technologies that everybody thought, well, oh, no, my God, we couldn't do anything about that. And I realized it was all about money and it was about the mindset in uh, uh, Wall Street that they had their paradigm, uh, which was basically the, it was backing into the future, looking through the rearview mirror. And it was all about the fossil fuel era and subsidizing nuclear energy. If you remember at that time, even Eisenhower said, oh, yes, you know, there's this nuclear energy. We'll have these power plants, you know, that'll be too cheap to meter. You know, that was unbelievable. And so I realized that the game was really money and power and that the uh, academics were basically always looking for grant money. And so I just got very deeply into that whole paradigm problem and realizing that the paradigm shift that I was going to spend the rest of my life on was what I'm still doing today. And that is tracking the emergence of the cleaner, greener, knowledge, richer technologies of what I call the solar age. And we're still playing the politics of the solar age. I mean, right now, as we speak, Peter, as you know, fossil fuels are still subsidized to the tune of five trillion annually Mm -hmm. worldwide. And so uh, the amazing thing is that solar, wind and energy efficiency technologies have been fighting this uphill battle on this unlevel playing field and still winning. And we've now got to the point where solar and wind are not only competitive with fossil fuels and nukes, 
but you know they're actually cheaper and so one of my real good friends all through this period was um Amory Levins and Amory had very much the same view that I did you know that that actually this transition the evolution from the fossil fuel era to the solar age was sort of unstoppable it was just the evolution of human knowledge and so that's what i still believe one of the things that happened after i left washington was that the calvert group of mutual funds had set up an advisory council and they were working on the idea that corporate performance and the measurement of corporate performance could really help to drive the capital markets in a more evolutionary direction and it was much to do with ending externality accounting and saying you've got to internalize all these social costs and then gradually um the market can work in a more evolutionary way and so i was invited uh, to join calvert's advisory council because i'd spent about 6 or 7 years with alice tepermarlin who founded the council on economic priorities with robert heilbronner who had written the worldly philosophers i'm sure you you enjoyed that book as much as i did and um so the, the council on economic priorities had invented the methodologies of screening corporate social performance on environmental and social criteria created a whole new industry this now huge industry mostly run by um, Morgan Stanley now and Standard and Poor's but in those days in 1982 when Calvert started we were almost the only ball game in town and uh, the Calvert Social Investment Fund began in 1982 and the people on the advisory council with me were Amory and Hunter Lovins and all of my favorite friends you know <laughs> <And> so <laughs> that was a wonderful experience and we developed the criteria around that first Calvert mutual fund so that was how i got into operationalizing my critique of economics hmm. yeah the uh, the dow for good and the the footsie for good are slowly but incrementally gaining credence and power as the organizations that meet their criteria deliver superior returns in the long, in the long term right right and so we were winning and you know at first we were all told we were communists and all of that stuff <laughs> but, you know the usual kind of rhetoric coming out of the university of chicago you know the chicago school and the freedmanites oh, the freedmanites you know that the only responsibility for corporations is to make money for the shareholders and of mm. course we had developed back then the whole idea of the stakeholder model you know that model that's just been adopted by larry fink um uh, is 20 years old you know uh, so it does take a long time for this stuff to to actually make it into the mainstream but you see what's happened now is that mainstream finance now is boxed in on all sides and i have a little diagram on this on one side you've got all the socially responsible funds that are doing very well the fossil free 
portfolios that are successful, all of this good stuff, you know. On the other side, you've got the Greta Thunbergs and the 350.orgs and the kids who want to divest the portfolios of their college. And then from below, you've got all the fintech 100, uh, those companies that are peer-to-peer lending, crowdfunding, all of this stuff, that are taking their lunch, you know, or the, the ones that now are run, running off cell phones like M-Pesa that started in Kenya and now is in almost every country in Africa, completely bypass the old banking system and everything's done on cell phones. And then comes along in 2015, this sustainable development goals. And suddenly they're getting it from their finance ministers. And Mark Carney, uh, the Bank of England, and uh, Bloomberg in New York started this task force on climate disclosure. And they hired uh, Mary Shapiro, who'd been head of the SEC uh, about four years ago now. And uh, Her job is to go around and to tell these companies, uh, look, you have to disclose on your balance sheet what your climate risks are. Another way of getting at the whole externalities problem. And so what's happened now, Mark Carney has left the Bank of England. He is now the UN's climate czar. And the push now is to force all of these companies who are disclosing their climate risk, there's hundreds of companies now, have been persuaded to look at their climate risks and begin disclosing. And Carney says, okay, now we have to make this mandatory so that they'll have to disclose it here with the S&C and on all of the markets. And so that means now that if these financial players, particularly pension funds, if they don't Uh, unpack those algos, which are overvaluing their fossil reserves by still calling them fuel, and get them to understand that uh, with a stroke of the pen, they can call them feedstock. You know, we we don't have any problem with carbon. We just don't want people to burn it. That's all. And so basically, the whole idea now is that uh, they have a rocket behind them now and if they and they call it transition risk and what they mean is oh my god we have all these stranded fossil assets and we don't know where to shift them to and where bill mckibben and the young people of 350.org that i know very well i used to keep on saying to them please don't talk about divesting if you tell an asset manager to divest from a fossil fuel company, they'll say, oh, okay, well, then I'll shift to Monsanto or, you know, I'll yeah. shift to um, an electric utility. You know? And they didn't understand that they had to talk about shifting to the kind of companies that we laid out the menu for 10 years in our Green Transition Scoreboard reports, every year since 2009, we have tracked the private green investments in all sectors all over the world, the best technologies, the best young companies. And so we've laid out the menu um, of the way these guys can shift their fossilized assets from liabilities, which is what they are now, to the future. 
where they can be militantly profitable. And so yeah. just to give you an example that's very self-serving because full disclosure, I'm an early investor. Uh, the kind of company I'm talking about is one that I invested in about five or six years ago called Envision Solar. Oh, everybody thought, you know, this is far too far out. This company makes solar umbrellas to cover the hundreds of square miles of parking lots in the U.S. that could be generating electricity for the facility the parking lot is serving. And so this company uh, has the solar umbrellas, and their most successful product now is solar electric vehicle chargers. And, you know, everybody says the only reason people don't buy electric cars is because of quote-unquote range anxiety. And this is utter nonsense, you know, so everybody's huffing and puffing, oh, you have to invest in R&D to get more and more battery power, you know, without the weight and all of this. And Envision Solar's EV chargers just says all that's rubbish because these EV chargers roll off the back of a truck. They install in any standard parking place and every gas station owner and every motel owner in the U.S. can buy one, stick it in their parking lot and it will pay for itself where the customers will charge their electric car with clean solar electricity. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't need the government to be involved. And also, um, they don't need any digging or permitting. Um, the best thing of all is that uh, the old electric utilities um, are trying to get governments to invest in EV chargers uh, to keep up their demand for fossil electricity. And what we are saying at Envision Solar is we don't need fossil electricity, we don't need the government to be involved. And so this has been a very long road, and I always go for good technology and excellent management. And now Envision Solar just went on to NASDAQ, and it's just been picked up by the FTSE Russell Small Cap Index. And so this, at some point, will help me fund our operations since we don't take any advertising. So, so there's a long story. You see, now there, that's what I call a pure play, yep. that little company. You aren't dissimilar to Warren Buffett in his principle about what makes a good investment is is a product he can understand with management he can trust. No, he's behind the curve. I mean, uh, he has, he got into it a little bit, you know, understanding the battery thing, but basically he's very old fashioned. And, and it's, it's basically people um, who are totally focused on money versus people like me that go for science-based investing. And the last report that we did with our Green Transition Scoreboard is called Transitioning to Science-Based Investing. And what we were saying is that the current financial markets, um, the greatest risk that, uh, now is not only climate denial, but science denial. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. they don't even look at the periodic table. You know, mm. we put that out in our report, you know, the periodic table. They, you know, look at all the opportunities there are here. You know? So they're all caught up in these money-based formulas, you know, interest rate risk and market risk and which ETF has the right formula and all of this stuff. We have this huge ETF bubble. Uh, way beyond the underlying assets and all this crap. And so we call it magical thinking. The whole financial system now is based on magical thinking. And, you know, you ask these people to open up their algo to check and see whether its assumptions still hold. And honest to God, what they say is, uh, oh, that's above my pay grade. Yeah. I get my bonus just by pushing the button. And as you know, these huge funds now, you know, about 60% of all market activity now is just computer algorithm driven. Yes, it's an, it's an interesting financial world now when, when almost all the so-called theories of how markets operate now just simply have been surrendered to what just seems to be a giant confidence trick. Yes, it really is unbelievable. And so all of my investing, we have 33,000 professional users on our site. It's a walled garden. We don't do social media and we don't sell advertising or anything like that. These are people who are ethical investors, uh, small boutique asset managers, Uh, CEOs of entrepreneurial young companies, green companies, and all of this. And, you know, basically, um, we invest in the real world. I mean, we look at real world risks, you know, like freshwater shortages and all of the things that we know um, are the, the issues we have to deal with in the real world, in the physical world. question is the one where and you've obviously touched on this but how does hazel henderson citizen of the world sense the emerging future what things excite you and also what things possibly even concern you about the emerging future well for the past 40 years i have borne the psychological burden of knowing that the human species were on a totally unsustainable course Mm. and headed over the cliff if they kept following the GDP uh, economic growth model. And mostly I learned that in the 70s from science policy stuff at OTA, but also because I was on the board of the World Watch Institute with with Lester Brown, and they called him Dr. Doom. Uh, And so... (laughs) Back in those days, we all talked behind the scenes. You couldn't articulate any of this stuff. But we all used to sort of agree that the human species probably had about a 50-50 chance of making it or that they might blow it and go over the cliff. And over the last 20 years or so, the conversation has gotten um, a little darker, really, because many of us have begun to think, well, that percentage is going in the wrong direction. A lot of people yeah. that I talk to 
in my circle now would say we're down to about 20% chance of making it. And I just reconnected with one of the members of our advisory board. And we have this wonderful global advisory board of public intellectuals, people like Fritjof Capra, and you, know, you probably know most of them. And this was Dwayne Elgin, the guy who wrote the book Voluntary Simplicity. And he's just come out with a new book called Choose Earth. And it's very, very gloomy. And he sent it to me and, and said, isn't it just time that we face up to the fact, much as Professor Jem Bendel is at that Scottish university. And he's talking now um, about accepting the reality that we've probably blown it. So it's rather like the Extinction Rebellion people. And um, I got back to Dwayne, whom I really love very much, and we've worked together many years. And I said, look, Dwayne, before you have a total council of despair, could you read the report that we did in 2018 called Capturing CO2 While Improving Human Nutrition and Health? And basically what we were saying in that report is that it is possible to shift the global food system on this planet within the IPCC timeframe of about 10 years so that the food system uh, changes from meat diets to plant-based foods and beverages, now a double-digit area of growth about 100 startups in this area that we've been tracking, and at the same time expand the indigenous foods that we don't use. But the total current food system is teetering perilously on the planet's 3% of dwindling fresh water. There is no water crisis. God knows this is the water planet. 97% of the water on this planet is saline. And of course, the earth, in her wisdom, has a plant kingdom of salt-loving plants called halophytes. And they are all ready to go. The The only one that's really hit the supermarkets is quinoa, the grain that everybody loves now, which grows wild on the salt flats around Lake Titicaca in Bolivia but it grows all over the world. And then there's China's salt-tolerant rice, which is grown in the south, almost on the beaches, and fetches huge market prices because it's so delicious. And I was just at a scientific conference at Arizona State University about commercializing the next one called Salicornia. And we've got gourmet chefs now and gourmet restaurants all over the world. It's called Sea Asparagus. And absolutely delicious, grows everywhere. Uh, no greedy capitalists can call it the market on it. <laughs> and um, then there are all of the food crops that fall off trees. Like one of our partners is in Brazil, and uh, they have a big ranch of about 100 acres near Rio de Janeiro up in the mountains. And I was talking to the woman who uh, founded that and wrote a book called Leadership is Global. And 
she said, my God, we have all these jackfruit trees and the jackfruits are falling on the ground. And as you probably know, jackfruit is delicious. It's a bit like aubergines and you can yeah. turn it into all kinds of delicious dishes. And a jackfruit is like 50 pounds. So one will <laughs> feed a village. <laughs> you know? And It'll uh, fall on your head. You know all about it. You know all about it, you know. And so I said, well, you know, we should start jackfruit marketing. So I put her in touch with some of our investor friends in Europe. You know? And jackfruits are now being marketed. I can, I can buy jackfruits here now in uh, North Florida. You can find them in restaurants, you know. And so you see, it's all to do with what Daniel Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, called a cognitive bias, which we love to quote. It's called theory-induced blindness. All we need now to change the food system, which currently, the current um, uh, agricultural development and industrial development of animals for meat and for slaughter. That's 15% of greenhouse gases every year. And it takes 50% of our agricultural arable land to grow the food and pasture all of these animals that we're going to kill to eat. And what the planet is definitely telling us with the pandemic is, hey, Don't chop down trees and don't trade and kill and eat animals. I mean, that's what the planet's saying, right? I did this paper with Fritjof Capra. We had a lot of fun with that. And so basically, if we continue shifting to these plant-based diets, we can bend the CO2 curve in the 10-year time frame, because the, particularly that a lot of these halophyte plants have very long roots and they capture carbon at ambient CO2 much more efficiently than forests. I mean, forests are wonderful, but take a long time to grow. But um, halophyte plants, you can crop them every year and they restore the soil, capture the CO2 and provide a crop that can either be eaten by humans or it can be for golf courses. And that's what my friends at the University of Adelaide are doing with their project to restore the land around the Murray-Darling Basin. So it's all to do with paradigms and whether you can get out of the prison, the conceptual prison of thinking everything has to be turned into money and the conceptual prisons of the current food supply. You know, the whole world food supply is in terrible danger now because we have to use saltwater agriculture. That's what the planet is telling us to do. Next question is the one around communication. Um, the one of how do you explain what you do, how you think and see the world when people don't necessarily understand what you think, see and do. So how do you do that? Well, I do a lot of writing and I'm very much of a wordsmith and I have been doing a television program 
which has been distributed globally to business schools and colleges. And they're all on ethicalmarkets.tv and they're free on demand. And mostly they're conversations with pioneer asset managers or good thinkers. And I continue to feel it's very, very important to figure out how to use mass media, which is our basic educational tool on this planet. And so I started the awards, the Ethic Mark Awards for advertising and communication that uplifts the human spirit in society. And of course, everybody said, oh, you know, that's really so far out, you know, mushy. But we've had 10 years of putting out this carrot and giving these awards, mostly that we found advertising campaigns. We have two categories, for-profit and non-profit. And most of the ad campaigns that have been nominated by our illustrious global judges panel um, have come from non-OECD countries, and they redefine what advertising can be. It really can be all about education for sustainability. If you go on ethicmark.org, you'll see our illustrious global judges panel, and you'll see the last 10 years of uh, award-winning ad campaigns. And they're only three minutes each. Uh, the last two we did that got the award in 2019, I loved, one was Carrefour's department store in France, and it's called The Black Market, and you'll absolutely love it. And the other is George Monbiot and Greta Thunberg talking about forests and for nature, nature for all. And, you know, this is what communication can be. So that project now I'm ready to spin off. I don't like to manage things. I don't like to market things. Uh, I like to create new projects and uh, verify and prove them in uh, the, you know, avant-garde audience and then see if I can find the right kind of adoptive parent to take them to the next level. So I'm ready to get this Ethic Mark Awards adopted, hopefully by some foundation. And we have our chair of our judges panel is Ravi Chowdhury in uh, India, who has been trying to get Steve Case's foundation called Revolution to get them interested in it. And then we have another project which is ready to be spun off, there's a lot of people now talking about responsible fashion. Have you run into that, Peter? Oh, yes. Yes, yeah. that's, that's been starting. Again, starting with the young, but also, yes, yeah, it's starting right. to really pick up. And what they have to do is to recognize that jewelry is fashion, too. And so we set up five years ago the first global standard certifying only gems not mined from Mother Earth, because now there is an artisan industry worldwide of laboratories that create uh, cultured gems which are chemically absolutely identical to diamonds, uh, rubies, sapphires, emeralds, whatever it is you want. 
it all depends how long you cook the carbon and at what temperature. And so we are encouraging the cultured gem uh, industry all over the world, and we're trying to put De Beers out of business <laughs> and shut down global gem mining, which is a disgrace. It's obsolete, unnecessary, kills hundreds of miners every year, and is ecologically destructive as hell and completely obsolete. So if you go to ethicmarkgems.com, there's another huge opportunity for somebody, you know, I trademark all of these digital assets and that certification, we're the only global certification. And of course, for millennials, that's the only thing they will buy is gems that don't get mined from Mother Earth. They're cheaper, of course, they're one thousandth the cost of the cartel diamonds from De Beers. So there's Absolutely. another profit opportunity for somebody. I'm trying to spin that one off. So that's what I like to do. I like to dream this stuff up and then spin them off, you know, at the appropriate moment. Yes, I find the opportunity and look for the solution. Yeah. And what I like to do most of the time is research and write and be a matchmaker. Like right now, the matchmaking I'm doing with this group at the University of Adelaide, trying to get them together with Sean Kidney in London uh, to see if we can get the government of South Australia to do a green bond, because this is a profit-making group at the University of Adelaide. I should put you in touch with them because they have four halophyte crops that they sell all over the world for good profit. And what their proposal is for restoring the soil in the Murray-Darling Basin is growing what's called salt bushes. And salt bushes restore the soil. They capture a tremendous amount of CO2 and put it back in the soil with their very long roots. And then um, they can, the salt bush uh, plant can be used for all, all kinds of purposes, probably most likely for aviation fuel. Yes, we are slowly learning that the best place for carbon is underground, not yeah, above ground. And, nature uh, knows what to do with ambient carbon. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So thanks, Hazel. It's been fantastic. It's certainly been something that I've been looking forward to, a chance to talk to you. But on behalf of the FuturePod community, uh, thanks for taking some time out to talk to us. Oh, it was great. I enjoyed it, Peter. Thank you. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.